Okay, we're, we're looking at this concept of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that it's only when you've got all that together that you've actually got what I'd like to call the actual truth in all its truthfulness. And so we've seen that if, if the truth that we need to know is, is given to us through the Bible by God, then one of the fundamental interpretative principles as we approach the Bible has got to be that we've got to be living according to the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now, I'm going to show you how that principle is the reason that we believe one of the most foundational doctrines of the Christian church. And I'm going to show you how it's only because of that principle that we do believe what we believe. So, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read a string of verses now, and we're going to put together the information that these verses give us. Now, first of all, Galatians and chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, on each of these points, there are a multitude of verses we could go to, but obviously one's got to draw the line somewhere. So, Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the bits I want you to just hook out of that are, by Jesus Christ and God the Father, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and according to the will of our God and Father. So hook those bits up. Now go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2. And Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what those verses and other verses, I put it to you, incontrovertibly tell us is that the Father is God. Now go to Romans chapter 9 and we're going to look at a string of other verses now. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. Romans 9 verse 5. Uh, if you're if you read the King James Version, some of this is going to rather disenfranchise you because the King James Version makes a total pig's ear of some of these verses, but nevertheless follow as best you can. Romans 9 verse 5. Now, this is speaking about Israel, but you get the point. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all. Alright? So hook that out. Christ, who is God over all. Go to Titus chapter 2. 
Titus chapter 2 verse 13 and Paul says while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ now go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and the reason I just say what I said about the King James Version with any of these verses that I'm reading now if you just read the King James Version you wouldn't know that Jesus was God okay so I mean there are loads and loads of other verses that you can establish that from in the King James Version but it just happens that these verses the King James Version fudges it quite badly uh, 2, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 and he says Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours now when you put those verses together and there are lots of other verses I could have gone to um, and, and indeed lots of other verses I could have gone to in the King James Version alright, um, no problem and what we've established here is that the Bible teaches incontrovertibly that Jesus is God now go to Acts chapter 5 not so many verses we could turn to for this one but truth is not established on the principle of how many verses in the Bible state it if there's something that but one verse in the Bible states as being true it's true but all I'm saying is not so many verses one could go to on this one Acts chapter 5 verse 3 and this is the Ananias and Sapphira uh, situation then Peter said Ananias how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit now go to the end of verse 4 you have lied not to men but to God so Peter says you lied to the Holy Spirit you lied to God this is one of the very few verses in the Bible and there are very very few verses that state this but as I say it doesn't matter how many verses state something if a verse in the Bible states something that is incontrovertibly true that's enough I'm just saying we don't have many verses that establish this truth but these verses certainly do the Bible incontrovertibly teaches that the Holy Spirit is God now go to John 14 so we, we've got to read some verses from John and again there are other verses I could go to but um, go to John chapter 14 I'm going to start off read verse 15 to 17 John 14 this is Jesus speaking if you love me you will obey what I command and I will ask the father and he will give you another counsellor 
to be with you forever the spirit of truth the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you so here we have Jesus saying that the father was going to send another comforter the Holy Spirit now go to chapter 16 going to read verse 12 to 15 and then I'll tell you the important thing that these and many other verses establish again this is Jesus speaking I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you all that belongs to the father is mine that is why I said the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you now the reason that I've read those verses and I think what I'm going to say now is self-evidence to you the New Testament incontrovertibly teaches that the father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are separate persons they are not one person appearing in three different ways they are three separate persons so Jesus could speak of himself as a person and say my father a person separate from Jesus is going to send you the Holy Spirit a person separate from the Father and from Jesus so can you see what we're talking about here is that clearly the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are separate persons now what we're going to do now is we're going to take these verses that I've read and we're going to apply simple logic to these verses and we're going to reach the only possible conclusion that logic can lead us to now let's just recap what we have established we've established from the Bible and all this is quite incontrovertible argue if you like but I don't think anyone is going to what we have established is the Father is God we have established that Jesus is God we have established the Holy Spirit is God and we have established that they are separate persons now I don't think anyone's going to argue with any of that not here because we're all Bible believing Christians but what I want you to get is that if we now apply logic to these verses in the Bible which incontrovertibly teach what I have just told you if we were to now do the math the Father is God Jesus is God the Holy Spirit is God if you take those incontrovertible biblical facts and statements and apply logic alone to them the only conclusion that you can possibly come to is that the Bible teaches that there are three gods 
In other words, the only conclusion you can logically reach is that the Bible is tritheistic. Tritheism, the belief in three gods. Now if I was to say, will any tritheists in this room put their hand up? I'm pretty sure, in fact I hope, that no one is going to put their hand up. Because whereas we have these incontrovertible biblical statements, and whereas if we apply logic to them, we reach the incontrovertible only conclusion that the Bible is tritheistic, we've got to say, hang on a sec, something here isn't right. And of course, the something here that isn't right is because we've got to remind ourselves that we live on the basis of, we apprehend the truth of God on the basis of the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. So, hang on, yes, there's something wrong here, because isn't there a verse somewhere in the Old Testament, in fact, aren't there lots and lots of verses throughout the Bible that say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And that verse is repeated over and over and over again. And I tell you, as long as that verse is there, we cannot believe that there are three gods, because it's clear that the Bible says there is only one God. Go to James chapter 2. And again, there are various verses we could turn to on this. Uh, not going to simply because time is always a factor and we've got a lot to get through. But let's go to James chapter 2 verse 19. I've already quoted the Deuteronomy 1 which gets quoted throughout the Bible. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Now listen to this, James chapter 2 and verse 19. And he says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So here, James is working on the assumption that his readers, other believers, like him, believes that there is only one God. So therefore, when we take those verses, we see quite clearly that the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, is actually monotheistic, the belief in one God. And yet we've still seen that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and that they are three separate persons. Hmm. Right, now, draw a line there. Let's start now from the second lot of verses. Let's start now from here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Let's start now from James, you believe that there is one God, good. Let's start now from John 17, when Jesus prays to his Father and says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Okay, so let's now start with those verses. And let's apply logic to the verses which say there is only one God. And if you apply logic to those verses, then there is only possi one possible conclusion you can reach. 
and it is that the Father is God and that therefore neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit can be God because there's only one God and the only conclusion you can then reach is what is called Unitarianism Uni, it means one the belief that there is only one person who is God so therefore we have a problem here and the problem is well how come we are not either tritheists the belief that there are three gods or Unitarians which would mean we believe that the Father is God but that Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't God now we've got to understand that in the early years of the Christian church and this happened during the period covered by the New Testament but it happened in the years afterwards as well that lots of heretics were coming into the church and they were coming up with all these teachings which they were saying was the truth of God and I mean there were things from uh, you know the belief that Jesus was an angel that that was very common there was another one the belief that Jesus was God but that he wasn't man he looked like a man and it looked like he was dying on the cross but he wasn't really because he was like a human apparition he just looked like a man okay and then there were other heresies that were coming in and they were saying things like no Jesus was just an ordinary man but at his baptism the Christ ascended you know descended on him and then the Christ inhabited Jesus alright but when Jesus died on the cross the Christ left him so, so you've got all these heresies so the early church they had to start thinking well, look hey you know we've got to start really being able to show people just what the Bible actually teaches alright and so when they looked at these things all these questions you know sort of like you know sort of is Jesus God is the Holy Spirit a person etc etc they had to look at all the evidence and where the early church got it exactly right is that because and I think it was instinctive to them no one had worked out hermeneutical principles at this point I think they just instinctively got it right because the Holy Spirit was leading them and they looked at all the evidence and they saw that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God it's all black and white there in Scripture they asserted that they're three different persons it's obvious that's black and white in Scripture and yet they had to face up to the fact that the Bible also taught that there was only one God and that was incontrovertible as well and so when they had to start saying well look this is what the Bible teaches about God I'll tell you what they did and this was as it were the stroke of genius they embraced the contradiction now they were potentially faced with a situation where there could have been a battle between Christians who said no the New Testament teaches tritheism 
and there and a battle with others who said, no, 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 the Bible teaches monotheism, therefore Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't God, therefore we're Unitarians. Can you see that battle could have, you know, some could have gone with some verses and said, I'm a tritheist. Others could have gone with other verses and said, we're Unitarians. Now, what the early church understood, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, they went with the totality of what Scripture incontrovertibly taught. And they embraced the contradiction and they said, there is one God who exists in three persons. Their definition is that the truth of God is that there was a Trinitarian Godhead. One God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, what they did, they took the tri out of tritheism, the un out of unitarianism, and they said the Bible teaches that God is triune. But here's what I want you to understand. The doctrine of the Trinity, well one, incontrovertibly what the New Testament teaches. I mean, I for one cannot see, and it's absolutely what Scripture teaches if you let Scripture speak for itself at face value. But the thing that you've got to understand is that the contradiction is not explained in that doctrine, it's merely stated. You see the point? It is a contradiction. When we rationally ask, how can you have three separate divine persons, but only one God? Or how can you have, there is one God, but he's made up of three separate divine persons? Can you see, on the rational level, we're confronted with what can only appear as a contradiction. But because it was what the Bible so incontrovertibly states as being the case, the brilliance, the, the genius of the early church, and I'm now talking about the early church fathers, this is one of the things they got absolutely right, and thank the Lord for them that they did. And some of them died for asserting this, okay, they saw that quite clearly the answer was there is one God in three persons. And hence the word Trinitarian is the word that stuck. But it remains a contradiction that we are merely stating. The fact that it exists as a doctrine kind of makes us assume, well, somehow the theologians have got it figured out, haven't they? Let me tell you, they have not. It's simply the statement of a contradiction. Now, at this point, before we move on, we've got to spend a little bit of time now dealing with the subject of contradiction. Because I'll tell you, on one level, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, I'll tell you, on one level, I'm extremely unhappy about contradictions. 
And as believers, if you love truth, you should be very unhappy about contradictions as well. So we need to understand something now about contradictions. And I want to show you that there are two different types of contradiction. I'm going to show you that there is actual contradiction and there is apparent contradiction. Now let's take the first one first. There are things which all you can do is to say they are irrational contradictions. In other words, it's nonsense. For instance, if you ask me tomorrow morning and, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of somebody, Adele said, hey, Beresford, what were you doing last night? And I said, well, you know, I, w I was at your house doing a Bible study. Okay. And, and then immediately after, Justin comes up, he says, hey, Beresford, what were you doing last night? And I said, well, I, I, I was at home in England, you know, in, in England watching Star Trek. Now, at that level, can you see we're just dealing with nonsense, okay? Or, for instance, uh, if you said, hey, Beresford, have you got any kids? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got a kid. Yeah, 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 you know, I've got 15-year-old boys called Michael. My other son's called Dan. Yes, I mean, not... I'm just talking nonsense. I can't say I've got one son and then say my other son is called... You see, here we're dealing quite simply with things that are contradiction. In other words, it's irrational nonsense. And the classically accepted foundation of all reason and logic is the simple statement, A is not non-A. Can you see the point? Two diametrically opposite things cannot be true at the same time. That is actual contradiction. And of course it should be clear, there are no such contradictions of those in the Bible. Of course there aren't. Because if God is the God of truth, everything in the Bible is true. So there are no actual contradictions in the Bible. If there were, tear it up, throw it away. We have no more use for it. Because if there was actual contradiction in the Bible, then there are things in the Bible that by definition aren't true. If there are some things in the Bible stated as true and they're not true, then even if there were only five things in the Bible that weren't true, how would you know which five they were? You can't. Throw it away. We're lost absolutely forever. Do you see what I mean? So there is no actual contradiction in the Bible. But now we've got to look at what we call apparent contradictions. And I'm going to show you this doesn't just apply to Christianity. There's apparent contradiction in every area of life. So let's, let's have a look at this. And again, there are two types of apparent contradiction. The first type of apparent contradiction is when you end up with what looks like a contradiction simply because you have failed to factor in all the available evidence. Do you see what I mean? So you've got an apparent contradiction, but you don't need it to be a contradiction. It's only a contradiction because you've missed a bit of information that is available to you. Now, let me give you an example of this from the Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8, Paul is referring back to an incident that happened in the Old Testament during the uh, life of Israel in the wilderness. And in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8, and we just want this one bit of information, alright? Verse 8 and, and verse 9. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Okay? So we have a statement. Paul is referring back to something that happened in Israel's history. And he says, in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now, if you go back to Numbers 25... Let's have a look at the actual incident that Paul is referring to, as recorded in Numbers 25. And it's in verses 1 to 9, but we don't want to read it all. Let's just go to um, uh, the second part of verse 8. So, we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says... We should not test the Lord as some of them did. No, sorry. He said, we should not commit sexual immorality and in one day 23,000 of them died. Now, Numbers 25 and at the second half of verse 8, this is the incident Paul is referring back to. He says, then the plague against the Israelites was stopped and those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Did anyone spot the contradiction? Paul says there were 23,000. Numbers said there was 24,000 who died. Now that's a contradiction. It can't be that 23,000 died and 24,000 died. That cannot both be true at the same time. In this plague, either 23,000 died or 24,000 died. It can't be both. We have a contradiction. But who spotted the bit of information that if we factor it in, (laughs) changes everything? Did anyone spot it? Okay, let's read the Corinthians passage again. In one day. In one day. Thank you. Paul said that there were 23,000 who died in that plague in one day. In numbers, it simply gives the total number who died. So clearly, there was a period of 24 hours in which 23,000 died, and another 1,000 died outside of that 24-hour 24, 24 period. Do you see the point? So when you then factor in that numbers is giving the total number, and Paul is giving the number who died in one day of that plague, then can you see that little missing bit of info that we add in, in, well, not missing, it was there all the time. We just missed it. You see, when you factor that in, it's not even now an apparent contradiction. You see the point? It's resolved. It looks like a contradiction at first sight, but when you factor it all in, oh, no, right, I can see the point here. Another example of this apparent contradiction in the New Testament is if you go through the genealogies of of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel and then go through his genealogy in Luke's Gospel 
it's a mess of contradictions. I mean, they just do not agree with each other. And, and so, what do you do with that? I mean, they just don't agree. But when you realise that Matthew is tracing Jesus' genealogy um, on his stepfather's side, Matthew, uh, Joseph, and that Luke is tracing Jesus' mother's genealogy, well, bang, suddenly it all becomes clear. It's not a contradiction at all. So what we're seeing here is contradiction in the Bible which you've got all the information you need to realise it's not actually a contradiction. So it's an apparent contradiction but you factor all the information in and suddenly it's not a contradiction anymore. But there's another type of apparent contradiction. And the other type of apparent contradiction is contradictions which cannot be explained because you haven't got the missing information. You see the point? They're apparent contradictions, but the information, the missing factor that would make sense of it, is just not available to you. Now, I can't give you any examples by definition of current apparent contradiction of this type. Because in order to do so, I'd have to have the missing information. So, by definition, I can't give you current examples. But to give you an example of this type, I'm going to give you the example of something that was an apparent contradiction to readers of the New Testament for nearly 2,000 years. Okay. Go to Matthew 20. Now, what we're going to see now... It's not an apparent contradiction anymore. We can explain it. But my goodness, for 2,000 years, no one could. Matthew 20 and verse 29. And we're going to look at Matthew's account of the healing of the blind men and then Luke's account. And it's the healings which included blind Bartimaeus. Okay? So we're going to look at the account of an incident in Matthew's Gospel, then Luke's account of exactly the same incident. So in Matthew 20 and verse 29, we don't need to read the whole account, uh, but we just need uh, this particular verse. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. Now, if we cross-reference this with other Gospels, we know that this was the time one of these guys was Bartimaeus. It was when he was healed. But here's the point I want you to get. Matthew says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. This miracle, according to Matthew, this miracle happened when Jesus was leaving Jericho. Jericho. Now go to Luke chapter 18. Luke's account of exactly the same miracle. Luke 18 and verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, Matthew mentions there were two of them. 
Luke only homes in on one of them. And from other information in the New Testament, we know that the guy here was Bartimaeus. Two accounts of the same miracle, but here's the thing I want you to get. According to Luke, this miracle happened as Jesus approached Jericho. Now, can you see the problem? Matthew says it happened as Jesus was leaving Jericho. Luke says it happened as Jesus approached Jericho. Now, can you see, here we have a contradiction of the highest possible order. Here's Jericho. Jesus leaves Jericho, and as he's leaving, he works a miracle. But according to the other place in the Bible, Jesus worked that miracle as he was approaching Jericho. I mean, how do you get round that? If that isn't a nonsensical contradiction, I don't know what is. Now then, let me tell you, at the beginning of last century, archaeologists in Palestine made an extraordinary discovery. And they discovered that Herod, the one who built the temple over 40 years, wherever it was, Herod was a great builder. They discovered that Herod relocated Jericho. He wanted a winter palace in Jericho. The Jericho, as recorded in the Old Testament, is actually one of the lowest lying cities in the known world. Way below sea level. The weather wasn't very good there. But there was another place, very, very close, in fact just two miles away, that was much higher. And it was much nicer climate. So having built his winter palace in the Jericho that existed, deciding he didn't like it, he built another Jericho two miles away. And at the time of Jesus, there were two separate cities or little towns called Jericho, two miles apart from each other. And that wasn't discovered until the beginning of last century. And suddenly, this is not a contradiction. We know that Jesus performed this miracle when he was leaving one of the Jerichos on his way to the other Jericho. And suddenly, it is not a contradiction at all. But, until it was discovered that there were two Jerichos, and hey, who'd have thought of that? Until it was discovered there were two Jerichos, crumbs, we were just left with this contradiction. And for 1900 years, Bible-believing Christians simply said, we know that the Bible is the Word of God. We know that it is true. We know that there is nothing in it which is wrong or unfactual. Therefore, although we haven't got the slightest idea how we explain this one, it is not an actual contradiction. And it took 1900 years before it became known why it wasn't a contradiction. There were two Jerichos. But, just imagine though, before archaeologists discovered this second Jericho, just imagine that someone would try to explain it and say, well, okay, actually, my theory is this. I reckon there were two Jerichos. 
Now, can you see, without any actual proof of that, everyone would have said, oh, yeah, 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 nice try. You see what I mean? So, what we've got here, this is an example of something which for many, many, many years was a contradiction which in every way looked like it was actual. It couldn't possibly have been actual because it's in the Bible. The Bible is not contradicts itself. It's, it's the inspired word of God. But therefore, it could only appear as a full-blown actual, nonsensical, irrational contradiction until eventually the evidence became clear. And until you get that evidence with such seemingly actual contradictions, you can't even theorise as to what might break the contradictory thing. Because without the evidence, everyone's going to say, well, that's no answer, you're just theorising. It could still just be a contradiction. Now, let me just quickly remind you that this is not something unique to us as Christians with the Bible. There are contradictions which cannot be contradictions, but also which cannot be explained, all over the place. And scientists come up against this a lot. Now, one of the, the as scientists have learned more and more about light and about energy, they're actually at the heart of much modern science is something which scientists admit is a complete contradiction that can't possibly exist. And it's the fact that it can be proven by experiment, it can be proven empirically to the satisfaction of the most stringent scientists that energy, therefore light, light is a form of energy, that energy exists as a wave motion. Now, not only are there experiments that prove that beyond any doubt at all, there's actually working science that is based on that fact that light is wave motion. And if light wasn't wave motion, we wouldn't have those machines and we wouldn't have that technology. But there are other experiments which prove utterly conclusively, and we have actual working science built upon it, we can prove that energy, that light, exists as little particles of energy. That it's particle motion. And we call these photons. So at one and the same time, we can prove that light is a wave motion and that it's particle motion. Not only that, we build technology on both of those things at the same time, assuming they're true. They cannot both be true. And the principle, the, you know, the, the way that the scientists cover this, is they say they define it as being wave-particle duality. Which is another way of scientists saying, we haven't got a clue what this is. If they're not explaining the contradiction, they're simply stating it. The nature, our best guess at light and energy at the moment, is that it's a wave-particle duality. And that's it. It's a contradiction. It can't possibly be true. But it is true. And scientists 
They simply, they don't say, right, well, let's abandon science until we've worked this out. They just say, we simply do not, un we do not yet understand other aspects of physics and nature that would explain that actual contradiction. So even science <coughs> deals with what they know are apparent contradictions. They're not there cannot be any such thing as a working actual contradiction. It's just a nonsense. But the point is they cannot even begin to explain it. So what we're dealing with here, when you get actual contradiction, you have nonsense. It is irrational. And there is nothing irrational about God, obviously, because he is the God of all reason. But when we get these apparent contradictions that we can't explain, those kinds of contradiction, they're not irrational, which is another way of saying they're nonsense. They're not irrational they are supra-rational. And supra-rational doesn't mean it's not rational at all. It means it's rational, but it's gone beyond the barrier at which our understanding can follow. Do you see what I mean? So it's not nonsense, it's not irrational, but it's nevertheless beyond our ability to understand. So therefore, Wave-particle duality in science is supra-rational. Now, our belief in the Trinity, one God, three persons, is exactly in the same little category. So for me, yeah, I am a Trinitarian, to use the technical word, I simply embrace the contradiction. I'm not going to go with one set of verses and conclude tritheism, three gods, am I? And I'm certainly not going to go with the verses on the other side and say, well, there's one God, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't God. What I do, I embrace the contradiction. But I embrace it knowing it's not a contradiction at all. And probably a far better word for it is that it is a paradox, okay? And so, therefore, it's not nonsense that we believe in the Trinity. It's simply what we acknowledge that the Bible incontrovertibly teaches as long as you go by the principle of the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. But ultimately, it is beyond our understanding. So therefore, that's showing you how the Christian Church got the doctrine of the Trinity absolutely spot-on correct. All right. But what I want to show you now is that my own conclusion is that there is one other doctrine in the Bible that is of the same ilk. Only one. That's my conclusion. There is one other doctrine that is like the Trinity in this respect, but only one. Okay, And this is where I'm going to show you that if we apply this exact same principle that gives us the doctrine of the Trinity, if we were to apply that to this other area where the Bible teaches such important things, 
then I think you're going to see that we're going to answer the question or answer the problem that traditionally has given us this whole conflict between these doctrines and theological systems known as, on the one hand, Calvinism and on the other hand, Arminianism. And what I want to show you is that the truth about Calvinism and Arminianism is that both are true and both are false and they are equal and opposite errors depending upon your point of view. Now, having said that, probably confused you, let's now, in exactly the same way that we did at the beginning with the Trinity, let's just read a series of verses together. Go to John, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I'm going to read verse 37 to 44. This is Jesus speaking. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day then go down to verse 44 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now go to chapter 10. And again, there are loads and loads of verses I could go to. I've just kind of chosen these, but there are loads and loads of others that all say the same thing. So John 10 and verse 29, and Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now John 17, this is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 10, he says, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And when you read, read through that, Jesus is specifically praying for those the Father gave him and then Jesus goes on to say I pray for them I do not pray for the world wow now go back John chapter 1 verse 12 to 13 and John writes to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, when I read verses like this, um, and indeed many, many others that are similar verses, if I am to take the Bible seriously and let these verses simply say what they say at face value, 
then I've got to conclude that salvation is absolutely all of God and nothing to do with the person who ends up saved. And what I read here is that whereas from my subjective point of view I surrendered to Jesus at a particular point in my life, as it were, I gave myself to him, the Bible says, yes, but the reason you did that is because the Father gave me to Jesus. Can you see the point? So when we talk about salvation by faith, yes, but the Bible teaches that faith is a gift from God as well. And what's interesting, these last verses that we read about being born of God, born again, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, the picture that John is giving, he's likening being born again to your physical birth as a baby. And here is the question. What say did you get in your physical birth? And the answer is, not a lot. In fact, absolutely none. Your birth was the result of processes and decisions that had gone on amongst others before you even existed, i.e. your parents. And what John is saying here, when someone is born again, is nothing to do with anything they've done. They have been born again because of something God had decided in that he wanted, as it were, to become their parent and to adopt them as his son. So what we've got here in these are many other verses. And when I also come across the language throughout the New Testament of election or predestination, then the only possible conclusion that I can come to is that what is meant by election and predestination is that I was elect unto salvation. God chose me. Nothing to do with me choosing him. I have to conclude that predestination is that before God created anything at all, he predestined me to become a Christian and that is why I am a Christian. Now, there are others who, when you talk about these election and predestination verses, they say they see something else in them. And what they say is that predestination is not talking about what, whether or not you become a Christian. It's simply talking about what God has got planned for you if you do become a Christian. And they say that's what these verses actually mean. Now, that's honourable. I've got no particular fight with that. But as I read all these verses, I have to say that to my mind, that latter interpretation, rather than explaining these verses, is rather explaining them away. And I'm not comfortable with explaining verses away. And this is what I'm meaning in the prior talk I did, be careful of theological systems. Because if these verses don't fit with your theological system, well, be very careful to make sure 
that you're not merely explaining them away to fit your theological system. Dare to let these verses challenge your theological system if you've got beliefs that go against these verses. But all I'm saying is, however honourable that other understanding is, I've got no great problem with it, to my mind it's not letting these scriptures speak absolutely at face value. So for me, I'm not going to try to explain them away. So, we have verses now, which to my mind make it absolutely clear, I was born again because God wanted me to be, and that's the end of the story. It wasn't that I gave myself to Jesus, it's that the Father gave me to Jesus. This was something He did, it was not something I did. Anything I did was a result of what he did. It wasn't the other way around. Okay, so we've got these verses and I'm saying that is what they clearly say. In exactly the same way that the Bible clearly says that the Father is God, that Jesus is God and that the Holy Spirit is God. So we have these verses clearly. We are elect unto salvation. We truly are God's chosen people. We were predestined to become Christians. So that's what these verses incontrovertibly teach. So now, just like we did with our verses about the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, let's apply logic to these verses and see where we end up if we simply go by these verses. And where you end up is with a God who does not want everyone to be saved. In fact, more than that, you end up with a God who could save everyone. Because if it depends purely on his choice, right? If the only factor is his choice, then God could have as easily saved everyone as if he decided to save no one. Okay. So therefore we have a God who could save all, but chooses to save only the tiniest minority of human beings. But it's even more than that. Because the God that we have now, it's not only that he chooses to save a tiny minority, it's that his express reason for creating the majority is specifically so he can damn them for eternity. And the reasons we come to is this, the majority whom God has created in order to damn speaks of his righteousness and his holiness. Whereas this minority that he chooses to save witnesses to his grace and his mercy. So if we take those verses, taking from them what they undoubtedly teach, and we saw earlier, it's undoubted, the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, in exactly the same way, if we take what those verses say, and then taking them in isolation, apply logic, that is what you end up with. A God who could save all, 
but deliberately chooses to save only a tiny minority so he can damn the majority to witness to his righteousness and his holiness. And we've got a problem. Now, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that may well be the logical conclusion of what those verses state as long as you just go with those verses. But the problem is this. You see, we've got to go by the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And whereas it's absolutely the case that those verses mean exactly what they say, if you apply logic to them alone and run with them, you then end up with a God who is alien when you look at the whole teaching of Scripture. Because throughout the Bible, we have it clearly stated that God desires all men to be saved. You see what I mean? When we take the whole Scripture into account, it's absolutely clear that Jesus died for all and that there is a genuine offer and opportunity of salvation for all people should they decide to take it and that their decision is actual and real. Again, we're stuck with our contradictions, aren't we? Let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 1 Timothy 2, 3 verses 3 to 6. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now, when I read that verse, well, blow me down. I just feel I've got to accept that at absolute face value because what else can it possibly mean? God does not desire that any should perish. Now, others look at a verse like this and they say, oh no, that, that's actually not what it means. What it means is that, that God doesn't want any of the elect to perish. You see? And when it says that Jesus died for all, it's all the elect. So, so what they're doing is, whenever all or everyone refers to anything except salvation, it means all and everyone. But whenever it refers to salvation, all and everyone now means all the elect and everyone who God has chosen. Now, I'm not going to get into any fights with people who that's their understanding. But what I am going to say is, I don't think that is explaining these verses. I think it's explaining them away in order to protect a theological system which is not in its entirety what the Bible teaches. Now, let me just chuck in here, still in Timothy, the same letter, now go to um, 
chapter 4. I think it's chapter 4. Is it chapter 4? Uh, hang on. 1 Timothy. Uh, I've lost it now. Hang on a sec. Um, oh, that, yeah. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, this is the same letter, just a few paragraphs later. So we're asking, does all mean all, or does it just mean the elect? And I'm saying that if you try and say no, it just means the elect. It doesn't actually say what it means. It doesn't mean what it says. It means the elect. So can it be that all means all the elect? Well, in the same letter, the same writer, Paul the Apostle, and just a few verses later, verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labour and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially those who believe. So here, the same writer, in the same letter, uses the word all to precisely mean non-Christians. You see? Who is the saviour of all men, and especially those who believe. So what we've got here is, Paul is saying, you have the offer of salvation for all, but it's only those who believe who come into the benefits of it. So therefore, I would just in that instant show, beware when people want to redefine all everyone in the world. Can you see what I mean? So now it only, as it were, includes the elect. Okay. So the point is that what we're seeing here is that the Bible clearly teaches that we are predestined to salvation. And if you weren't, you couldn't be saved. Because if at the end of the day it depends on something you do, then it is of works and we can boast. And Paul makes absolutely clear that isn't the case. But if you just go with the election verses in isolation, you end up with a God who is certainly sovereign, powerful, majestic, Absolutely right. I go with that 100%. But he's not very merciful. He's not very gracious. Because if you can save all and choose only to save a very few, you're not the God of all grace. You are the God of a little bit of grace to a few people. You see what I mean? So therefore, in exactly the same way that run with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are God verses in isolation from the rest of the Bible, you end up with three gods. In exactly the same way, run with the chosenness verses in isolation from other verses in the Bible, you end up with a God who is sovereign, but he is not very loving. He is not very gracious. He is not very merciful. But now, let's start with the verses on the other side. Let's start now with the verses that God doesn't want any to perish. You see what I mean? Let's come at it now from the verses on the other side of this divide. So we see that, yeah, salvation is available for all and hey, it's up to you, buddy. You know, I mean, you know, there it is. God's made the offer. It's up to you. I'll tell you what. There are verses that say that, and I believe it. But let's now apply logic 
to those verses in isolation. Where do we end up? Well, I'll tell you where that leads us if you just apply logic to those verses. You end up with Jesus dying for everyone in general and nobody in particular. With God's plan of redemption dependent on the role of the dice of human decision as to whether or not anyone's going to accept the offer and be saved. You see the point? So now salvation is down to the role of the dice of, of, of you being in the right place at the right time in the right mood almost. Can you see what I mean? And what we end up now is we have a God who, yeah, he's as loving and gracious as the day is long because he wants everyone to be saved. Yes, amen. But now, if we don't factor in the verses on the other side, we have a God who, however loving and gracious he is, he is weak. He is defenceless. He is impotent. A God who has made himself the victim of chance outcomes in a universe where he has not fixed the outcomes. Can you see the point? So therefore that God, loving and gracious, but he's weak. This is not the sovereign God that the scripture speaks about from beginning to end. And of course that can't be right either because God is sovereign. Can you see what I'm going on here? If you run with Calvinism, you end up with this sovereign God who is not very gracious. He is not very merciful. He is not very loving. In fact, you end up with, with, with stuff that is, is close to blasphemy. That such a God could be said to be good. But if you go with the other side, Arminianism, and run with that, then salvation is so much down to you. And it raises a question. Supposing no one had wanted to be saved. <laughs> you see the point? And it's no use saying, well, that couldn't have happened. And, and even God's foreknowledge won't, won't help you out there. Because if you say, ah, but God in his foreknowledge knew that people would be saved. Yeah, but if that's just God's foreknowledge and him not making it happen, then supposing his foreknowledge has shown him no one's going to get saved. Well, would, would Jesus not have died then? Can, can you see the point? It's crazy. It's back to the problem or not the problem, the early church refused to divide into groups of tritheists versus Unitarians. And it was because they embraced the whole of scripture which included embracing the apparent contradiction. And because they embraced that contradiction, they ended up with the truth. So therefore, what we're saying here is in exactly the same way that you've got to take the tri from tritheism and the un from unitarianism. 
In exactly the same way, we have got to embrace both the heart of Calvinism, God's election, and the heart of Arminianism, the offer of salvation genuinely being open to all. And we've got to bring them together, refusing to believe in the God of either, but believing only in the God of both brought together. Because that is the God that the scripture teaches about. But the tragedy is that, you know, whether you think in terms of Calvinism, Arminianism, or doctrines of grace and remonstrance, it doesn't really much matter the terminology you put on it. The Christian church has a history of dividing into sometimes, tragically, warring factions on both sides of that debate. And that would have been, well, that is the equivalent of had the early church divided into the church of tritheism and the church of Unitarianism, each embracing an absolutely true aspect of the truth whilst refusing to embrace and merely explaining away the counter-truths that didn't suit their systems. And in exactly the same way, when it comes to things like Calvinism and Arminianism, we must embrace the heart of both. Because both are right, but also both are wrong. Can you see what I mean? Calvinism is right about one bit and wrong about the other. But Arminianism is right about the bit where Calvinism's wrong, but it's wrong about the bit where Calvinism's right. Can you see what I mean? And even if you take the names out, because Calvin and Arminius, they're just names in history that have ended up labelled on. Forget the individuals. The doctrinal war has pretty much always been there. And so therefore, what I'm saying is, that when it comes to predestination and free will, in exactly the same way that I do with the Trinity, I simply embrace the contradiction. I embrace the paradox. And it means that on the one side, I have Calvinists jumping up and down saying, Beresford, you can't have it both ways. Declare yourself. And obviously they want me to declare myself as a Calvinist. And then I get Arminians on the other side saying, Beresford, you can't have it both ways. Declare yourself. Obviously they want me to declare for Arminianism. Now the trouble is that when I get friends with Calvinists, eventually, see, they always assume I'm a Calvinist because they realise that I believe in election. And then they're disappointed when they find out I'm not a Calvinist because I believe in free will. But when I make friends who are Arminians, it's the other way around. They think, oh, he's a good Arminianist, believes the gospel's out for everyone. <laughs> and then they discover I believe in election. They get unhappy with me. So I get it from both sides. But look, you can't say, Beresford, you can't have it both ways about predestination and election and, the, uh, and free will. And the reason you can't say that to me is this, because if you do, I'm going to say, well, how come you can have it both ways on the Trinity? Nah, can you see what I mean? I'm trying not to get small-minded about this, but can you see the point? 
And what people don't realise, we're having it both ways on the most foundational doctrine that the Christian faith has. The very nature of the Godhead, Trinitarian. So if we embrace the paradox there, what's on earth is the problem with embracing the paradox of election unto salvation, whilst at the same time it remains the case that the offer of salvation is open to everyone and that is genuine. It's not a kind of a, it's not a masquerade that God's playing out in history. Everyone genuinely can be saved if they believe in Jesus. And you can say, but Beresford, it's a contradiction. And I say, and so is one God in three persons. But if we embrace that contradiction because of what the Bible says, why on earth can't we embrace this contradiction as well? So therefore, you know, kind of, um, I, I, I suppose, therefore I come to you as a devout Calvin Minion and a doctrinaire Arminist. I am an unashamed embracer of the doctrine of free destination and pre-will. And before you say that's cheating, let me remind you, the doctrine of the Trinity is we've taken the tri out of tritheism, the un out of unitarianism, and we've joined them together with a hyphen, we say triune God. So in exactly the same way, don't say that I can't believe in predestination and free will, because I'll tell you, not only am I perfectly free to do so, I put it to you, it is clearly what the Bible teaches, if only we are prepared to admit that we've put our theological systems higher than the authority actually of Scripture. If you go with the Bible the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, then you will no more feel free to be a Calvinist than you will an Arminian. Can you see what I mean here? Let me end it here, because I know we struggle with this idea of contradiction, of having it both ways. But once you've understood that that's exactly what we do with the Trinity, I think you can be happier about it. Because I've demonstrated to you there are no contradictions in the Bible, that would be ridiculous. But there are apparent contradictions that can only appear to be actual contradictions because we haven't got a clue how to reconcile them. We can't with the Trinity, and I'm saying we can't with this. It's simply beyond our understanding to do so. But hey, when we're talking about the very nature of God himself, did we really think that we were going to get that summed up, nailed together and put in a little box? Mm. But of course we weren't. So why should we think we can do that in regards to predestination and free will? And we've got Calvinists on one side, they think they've got this nailed, when all they're doing is, is really twisting a ton of verses that go against them. There are the Arminians who are happy that they've got it nailed. Well, they're just twisting the verses that the Calvinists embrace, while the Calvinists are busy twisting the verses that the Arminians embrace. I say, hey, I'm going to embrace them all, and I'm going to embrace that paradox, and I'm going to be completely happy about it as well. So let me end with this. I can't remember, I think it was one of the English poets, 
it could have been Wordsworth, it could have been Yeats. I'm not quite sure. But one of them recounts an experience while they were on a holiday in Scotland. And they were in a Scottish pub, and they were overhearing two Scotsmen having like a debate with each other. And one of the Scotsmen was, was a Highlander. And he was arguing that the most beautiful part of Scotland were the Highlands. Now, the guy he was arguing, you know, debating with was a lowlander. And he was arguing, no, the most beautiful part of Scotland are the lowlands. Now, this Englishman, the poet, he kind of was overhearing this, and he went over to them and he said, gentlemen, do you mind if I contribute your conversation? I said, oh yeah, feel free. And he said, look, as an Englishman, as an outsider, I think there's a perspective that I can give you that you might not have thought of. And he said, I just want to tell you, the most beautiful part of Scotland, no question, is where the highlands meet the lowlands. And when you grasp that, that's how we have to grasp some theological truth. Other things in the Bible, they are kind of nailed down and boxed up. That's okay. But I'm just saying, let's not try and do it to the doctrines that can't receive that treatment. Embrace the paradox. The truth is where election meets free will. The truth is where one God is in three persons. Can you see what I mean? Embrace that paradox and be at peace with it. And if you are tempted to remain in a theological system on this, I do implore you, put that system to one side and go back to the Bible. And if you find yourself saying, no, I can't do that, there's only one reason you can't. And it's because you've already convinced yourself that your theological system is what the Bible says. Well, if you've got to that point, your theological system is as infallible to you as the Bible is. And you no longer are free to learn more truth from scripture. Do you see what I mean? So put the theological systems to one side and make sure that you really are going by the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. If anyone wants to respond, questions, please feel free. Yes, please. About the triune hmm. paradox. Yeah. Imagine three triangles. If you put them all together, they make one triangle, corner to corner, but there's still three triangles. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not very good at geometry, but yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> you have to draw that, actually. I, I think I can picture that, but yeah. It's basically a triangle with a smaller triangle whose three points are in the middle of the three lines of the larger triangle. Got you. So you've got the triangle, then you join each corner to the middle, and you've got other triangles within it. So yeah, it's three triangles, and the points are each connected into a larger triangle. Right, yeah. There you go. And Homeschool kids, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's a nice so, what one. other um, apparent contradictions or 
obvious contradictions do you see in Scripture? I mean, free will, predestination, huge. I, th- I think that's it. Uh, you know, the, when, when you've done the Trinity in this, I and mean, when you think the Trinity is dealing with the very nature of God, the predestination free will thing is dealing with the nature of salvation, God's relationship to man. So you're in equally deep waters. Mm-hmm. I think other things... Now, I'm not saying you know, that, 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 that we got every doctrine in the Bible nailed completely. There's always going to be differences of understanding. But I think that Trinity and predestination and free will are the only two areas of truth in the Bible where the paradox kind of applies to. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't anything else, but I, I'm not aware of anything that I would put into that category. Okay. The, um, the, ish, the thing about the chosen or not chosen yeah. it becomes I am of Paul I am of Apollos and every time I've come across it the division amongst people even just debating it is mm. sometimes terrible mm. uh, and yeah. you are, like, you're doing the very thing that we're told we're not to do I'm of Calvin, I'm of Arminian I'm of whoever Joe Dalton, we're not supposed mm. to do that but on that topic you overhear a conversation between people who are staunch in their camps. Mm. It's glaring what what they're arguing about. The I am of yeah. camps. And yeah. And, and and it's certainly true, even even if you feel you can't buy into this, you know, and, and, and you remain a Calvinist or an Arminian or whatever, it should absolutely be the truth. They shouldn't make the slightest bit of difference in your fellowship together. And this is one of the things that people don't seem to understand. Because if you've, you know, because, I mean, there are lots of people who would classify themselves as Calvinists. They are otherwise mature believers and they'll, they'll get on with you just fine. They don't need you to agree with them before they'll have fellowship. And it's the same with Arminians as well. They're mature, you know, sort of people. But there are other Christians who... They, they take some of these secondary issues or these theological systems and that becomes their test for whether they take you seriously as a believer or not. Because their argument is, I am right, so if you were right with God, you would realise that I'm right because you'd agree with me. Now, obviously, they don't phrase it like that. They say this is what the Bible says, but that's actually what they're saying. They're not giving you the freedom to go back to Scripture for yourself. So then they're making a judgment on you based on your doctrinal position. Now, here's, here's the thing to get. If you've got someone who is a doctrinaire Calvinist over here, over here we've got a, a doctrinaire Arminian, okay? Now, if these two Christians, if they are otherwise mature believers living in obedience to Jesus and living on the basis of the word of God every Monday morning they get up and live the same there's no difference between them they may have slightly different understandings about you know sort of prayer and stuff but the point is they're not living any different and of course where it goes wrong is where you can hear oh you're a Calvinist are you and you make a spiritual judgement on this person purely because they're a Calvinist that's ridiculous and, and in the same if Calvinists do that to Arminians 
and as you know, Belinda says, we meet this as we travel around, and it's just doctrinal arrogance. It's as simple as that. It's doctrinal arrogance. At the end of the day, it doesn't actually make any difference to how you live. So on what basis can you say that Calvinists are more mature believers than Arminians, or vice versa, that Arminians are more... That's ridiculous. You know, if you want to look for the signs of maturity, don't look at their understanding of the doctrine of predestination and free will. Look at how they live. But when you do get Christians who are making these doctrinal judgments on others, the truth is they are the carnal believers. They are the immature brothers. Because they're doing the I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus that Paul castigates the Corinthians for. Dividing into these little subdivisions and being factious. So even if you do want to go for one theological system over another, whatever you do, don't let that affect your fellowship with someone who holds to a different theological system. If they love Jesus and are living the Christian life, well, <laughs> you see, and yet Christians, they want to keep dividing and arguing and making judgments about each other on these things. Not good. Beresford, maybe you could comment on the uh, uh, doctrinal position of in, in the infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture, right? Because that's one of those things that comes comes to mind in regards to one of these type of doctrinal things. I mean, you mentioned the King James, you know, yeah, how, you know, messes these all up, but. Oh yeah, and the King James gets other bits right that the modern ones mess right. up, you know, because they're based on two different sets of manuscripts. Right, and so that's one of those things that people would have. A, it's it's like a uh, not wanting to embrace reality. The reality is, mm. you know, the reality is that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture in their mm. original. Yeah, you know, as originally yeah, given, and yeah. we don't have those well, documents. Have those, no, you know, no, so. no. I mean, the point is this sort of divisiveness. I mean, I, you know, I've, I, I've highlighted Calvinism and Arminianism because that, that's the subject we've been dealing with today. But when it comes to divisiveness, there are all kinds of ways that Christians can fall out with each other over things that you think, why would you want to fall out? Now, let me make it clear. There are issues of practice which are obviously going to make, for instance, you think, I'd like to be part of this church, not that church. So, I'll give you an example. If you're convinced that baptism is for believers only, you might end up being unhappy about being part of an Episcopalian church. Can you see what I mean? So therefore, because that's an issue of practice, you're not going to want to be doing church and practicing that with other believers as church life. It doesn't mean you can't have great friendship and fellowship with believers in those churches, because mm. you're not doing church together, but we all, I hope, have friends and fellowship outside of our churches. So the point is, um, you, know, you know, again, you know, if you're sort of like, you know, if you, if you speak in tongues and believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you might not want to be part of a church that's very cessationist or, or something like that. 
in the same way that if you're convinced as I am that the Bible teaches a particular way to do church, well, I'm going to want to be part of a biblical church, not an unbiblical one. But that doesn't mean I can't have great fellowship with believers in other churches because our fellowship is around Jesus. So in regards to that, there are practice issues. um, But that's practice. It's not theoretical doctrine in that sense. Um, you know, so, so you know, and, and also there's there's things about you know if, if you think it's right that women don't teach. Well, if you if you've got a church, even a biblical one, and they want women elders, well, you might feel I couldn't be part of a church that's doing that because I think that goes against scripture. But you could still be friends outside of the church setting. But now, when we think of things like different understandings of predestination and free will, irrespective of what church you're in together or why on earth would you want that to actually affect your fellowship together you might discuss it here and there and that's fine, no problem but fall out about it or, I mean, you know, let's say you know, there's this thing, there are Christians and this is a growing thing, they actually believe that the King James Version is the inspired word of God now, I mean, I that's not somewhere I can go. I mean, I don't, you know. But the point is, if there was someone in our church back home and they believed it, well, assuming they're not banging on about it the whole time, what's the problem? But the problem is when they have got to convince you, as a matter of first order, that you shouldn't be using the NIV or whatever. Can you see what I mean? <clears throat> so you've got to draw a distinction between differences of understanding and when someone is getting factious and they just want to impose this one thing, whatever it is, they've got to impose it on everyone else. But then the problem is you've got factiousness. The problem isn't the doctrine or the thing they want to impose, it's that they want to impose it on everyone. That's the problem. So maturity will work through these things and realise, well look, hey, we are free to be different in all sorts of ways and we can bring that to the table in a humble attitude, learn from each other, but without the need to make everyone like us when it comes to our pet doctrine or whatever it is. And you know, in, in our church, we, we've always had people on different places in regards to the predestination of free will thing. It's never been a problem. Why should it? But only because we don't see why it should be a problem. I mean, it's beyond us. And you know, and no one wants to declare for an ism. That's the key. We don't believe in isms. We want them all to be wasms. Some someone said to Belinda once, you know, a church that you know we go to fairly, fairly regularly, and uh, you know, from something that Belinda said, she she got the feeling that that there were people in our church who weren't Calvinists, and she. She, in, in all amazement she said to Belinda some of you aren't Calvinists <laughs> and she was utterly amazed that we would be having fellowship with people who aren't Calvinists and Belinda said none of us are Calvinists <laughs> but you hit up against that attitude sometimes as if there's something wrong with you just because you don't buy into my particular understanding on something. I was just going to say that since the Armenians roast you and the Calvinists roast you, you're really well roasted. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well done, maybe, 
You tend to get it from both sides, yes. In, in the uh, uh, second chapter of Corinthians, uh, he's saying some of the same things, just in different words. But uh, verse 21, it says, Let therefore no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Kind of the result of that, I am of mm. Paul, Cephas, and all that. It's like, hey, all, all things are yours. Mm. You know, relax. And then the, earlier in the chapter, he's, he's talking about the... The, the spiritual man, you know, he's not even, he's calling them babes because they're so mm. separatist and doing all this stuff, but uh, mm. if they could just uh, give up how far the rational mind can take you, we can't take you very far. That's no. not God's mind, you know, the mind of Christ. So mm. it's like a natural man, that's what we're dealing in, the fallen mental ability of, mm. of all of us when we're looking at men and their little this group, this group, he's saying, hey, all things mm. are yours. You, know, you can receive a lot more fellowship with a lot more mm. than uh, it's like the Scots one. Mm. Yeah. There's a place where they meet and they can uh, actually cohabit the same ground, I guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong per se to do any kind of systematizing with the Bible because if you're doing that as part of a teaching aid, unpacking it for people, that's useful. If you like drawing a map of the Bible, that's a good thing to do. As long as all the time you're saying to people, you check it for yourself. Don't, you know, don't take it just from me. But the problem is that, you know, that with the early church fathers, because they were Greek, the problem was, it wasn't that there was any kind of systematization going on, because they did that with the Trinity. It was the fact that it all ended up just going too far. Because one of the things that is obviously noteworthy, when you read the Bible, it precisely is not laid out like a systematic theology. God could have done that. We could have had chapter after chapter after chapter with one, two, three, four. Now we move on to the nature of sovereignty. One, two, all laid out like a system. The reason we have systematic theology is precisely because the Bible isn't like that. Now, that needn't make us think absolutely no systematic theology at all. Because if it's merely a teaching aid, absolutely no problem. But it should make us aware that you cannot systematise the whole Bible in the way that you want to. By definition, there are always going to be things that don't fit. And, and, and one of the differences between the Jewish mind and the Gentile mind, you know, and obviously as I always say, you can only ultimately understand the Bible as you learn to think Jewish. And they were the nation with the oracles of God. They knew best how to think. And what's interesting... Is, is, is that, that it was the, the, gen, the, the Gentile, the Greek mindset, that wanted to have everything in boxes, all tied up with no contradictions or anything like that. And uh, I heard um, a Jewish guy teaching once, and, and uh, you know, he, he's a converted Jew, you know, Christian, good Bible teacher, um, you know, sort of very aware of what the Bible teaches, but also, very, you know, he's Jewish, he's got the thinking. And, and I heard him, you know, teach once, and he was saying that, 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 that if, if church history had remained purely with Jews and hadn't gone on to the Greeks, that there would not be a doctrine of the Trinity. Because he said, 
we Jews would have never had any reason at all to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Now he says, as a Jew, when I'm confronted with the doctrine stated as it is, I say, yes, oh yeah, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. But the Jews would never have needed to come up with it because that's not how they thought. Do you see what I mean? Mm. They could believe it without needing to systematize right. it. And the reason for that is that the Bible knows nothing of doctrine being in the area of the intellect, somehow separate from day-to-day -day life. What does the doctrine mean then? When it's well, yeah, what's interesting is when we look at various ways that Paul uses the word doctrine, because for us, if we talk about doctrine, we're thinking, well, if you go to seminary, you'll go to lectures and you'll learn doctrine. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, or you, you read a, a, a book about a certain doctrine. Now, with, with Paul, like he could write to Titus, and he says, well, tell the older men to live like this tell the younger men to live like this and then he says and other things that befit sound doctrine so the point and, and elsewhere he talks about adorning the doctrine of God so the point is for Paul what, what we would want to categorise in isolation of doctrinal truth for him doctrine was not what you believed sound doctrine was living right as a result of believing right. Can you see what I mean? The outworking of doctrine wasn't what you believed, it was how you lived. Now, obviously, no use believing wrong, because if you believe wrong, you'll live wrong. But the point is, if you take, you know, so, say for Ephesians, Colossians, you know, or a letter from Paul to a church, and there's kind of like a pattern that emerges often in how he teaches. And you've got this letter, and it starts off with, you know, I mean, say take Ephesians, I mean, this incredible, all this, this, you know, what God has done for you in Christ, and it's soaring, it's cosmic, it's, it's beyond our ability, we're, we're swept up into the heavens, and we're grasping with things that we can barely begin to grasp with our academic mind. And you see, the problem is what we do is that, that, you know, that you get Bible teaching and it deals with those doctrines. Now, what you're missing is this. Paul, he takes you up into the heavenlies with these doctrines in his letters. And then he gets to the bits about the letter where he's saying, now, so make sure you're filled with the Spirit. And so we do teaching on that. But then Paul goes on to say, wife, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Children. And he talks about how you live in the day-to-day. -day. So all that doctrine, as we were at the beginning, is only there because this is, this is how it means you live. Whereas what we do, we lift the doctrine out of Scripture as if you can somehow apprehend that as a theological concept as opposed to what sort of person it's actually making you. And, and that has been our big mistake. And that's why we're stuck. And we've all seen it. And we know that because we're sinners, it's, it's, you know, sort of, it's there in us as well. But the way that we can end up being so unquestioning about how you can live Utterly, utterly at variance with what you say you believe, and yet we can still say he's sound doctrine. Isn't it what I mean? Yeah. We've separated things that belong together. And the test is not ultimately what you believe, it's how you live. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, and, and so we've, we've ended up in our, in our attempts to grapple with doctrine, we end up falling out with each other over disagreements concerning what you might call naked doctrine. And we're completely missing that Paul's writing to the Corinthians saying, well, when you do that, you're being babies again. You know, and, and so much of our soaring, grand, classical theology, yes. Paul would say, no, that's the stuff I dealt with in Corinthians. What are you doing that yeah, for? It's the elementary. Sure. Uh, it reminds me of um, God poured out his love into our hearts, yeah. not into our heads. Yeah. So we have all the doctrine that's trying to control our lives up yeah. here in our heads, but the reality is. God poured out His love into our heart, so maybe our heart needs to overcome yeah. our head so that we can embrace the contradictions, or that we can embrace each other who have mm. the contradiction, you know, apparent contradiction. Yeah, here's here's an interesting comparison to make. New Testament, Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, He gathered around Himself, plus those outside of them who He used as the prophets to write Scripture. All right. Now, when we look at this, the beginning of Christianity, the beginning of everything, and we see what virtually all of them had in common is that they were unlearned men. Now, we have one scholar, Paul. So, there is a place for the theologian. But what's interesting, in the Bible, he was in the minority. He did his bit. Most of them, they were unlearned men. They weren't interested in, you know, theology at seminary level. Now, when we look at the history of Christianity since, and when we look at Christianity today, what do we see dominated by the theologian? Exactly the wrong way round. Only in the West. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. The center of Christianity today mm. is dominated by unlearned men. Mm. We just forget, we choose to mm. say that they don't exist. Yeah, that's mm. right. Because yeah. they don't exist where they get... Attention. Christian yeah. magazines yeah. and Christian television. But yes, that's right. It's shifted to Africa yeah. and Asia, yeah. China, and yeah. the theologians are well, yeah, even among the saints here in the in mm-hmm. in the West. You know, the ones that the ones that aren't on TV or you know radio programs or whatever aren't the ones that are mm-hmm. um, upheld. You know, if if Jesus wanted to raise up an army of Businessmen to run this institution mm. the way that we, the way that here in North America we look at and say, oh, they're successful because they have this huge building and a huge number of people and they have all these programs. If Jesus was trying to train people to do that, then he he failed mm. with his disciples mm. because that's not what he was trying to teach. That's them. right. That's right. I need to make mm. yeah. Excuse me. It's time to take a break. If you would like to take a break, if you'd like to stay in here and talk some more, that's fine. But well, it's, it's, it's break time, um, transitioning to audio time, so... Oh,